You're riding on the Denial Bus with Patty Crouch and Holly Gates. This is Patty. Um, I'm excited today because I am interviewing someone who I have actually never met. And I've only had <laughs> one conversation with her, but she seems like one of those amazing individuals that we just need to know her story because she's doing really great things for foster kids and foster parents and the whole community. Um, I met her because she's on one of the foster, uh, the face group, foster California foster pages, and she made a a post and I was like I need to talk to this lady and so I just messaged her which was really out of my comfort zone because that's not really well it's me not me but anyways anyways so welcome Jojo thank you I'm excited to be here and be talking with you I loved our first conversation so this should be exciting I know I felt for like uh, all of us <laughs> if it wasn't dinner time at that time I felt like we would have probably talked through the night about so many different things um, and then I kept wanting to go, I want to record that. I want to record that. I want to record that. <laughs> so I was excited that you are so open to be able to want to record with me. So I appreciate that. So thank you off the bat. Um, You're welcome. So like I said, I know nothing <laughs> of your story. All I know is that you were a foster kid. That's it. Yes. Yes. So what's your well, story? What a broad question. <laughs> what's your story? I actually like to start my foster care story before I was in foster care because I think so often we forget um, there's so much narrative that led up to that point, to that point of the state stepping in and having to come and take somebody's biological child away from them for whatever the reason is. So what you should know a little bit, my story always starts with my bio mom, and she um, she's actually a pretty amazing woman. She had three girls uh, when there was sort of a depression line. She was a single mom, and um, I, she has, you know, and I've asked her permission to share this part of her story so everybody knows, mm-hmm. um, but she has, she's bipolar schizophrenic, and mm-hmm. so... Uh, the thing with that is back in, you know, the 80s, 90s, there wasn't as much research as there is now. And then on top of that, being a poor mom of three girls in a time where you just didn't have much support was hard. And, um, you know, the truth is my we moved around a lot because we were homeless often. So I always say I've, I've lived on the streets. I've lived in cars. I've lived in shelter homes. And um, it just got to the point where I believe she really realized that she couldn't take care of us anymore. And she actually um, gave my two sisters to their dads. We all have different dads. But because she didn't know who my, where my dad was, she kept me. So me and her went on a really perilous journey together, you know, and How I was in and out of foster you? care. How old were you? How old was I when my sisters and me were separated? Yeah. That first time? Yeah. Um, oh gosh. I was maybe six. Remember going into first grade without my sisters and how hard that was. It was something that really stood out to me. What was your thought? I don't I mean obviously you're six, so I don't know 
what you could be thinking and maybe you don't remember and you you can say I don't remember. But was there ever a moment bef- like when when you were living with your mom in this kind of transient lifestyle that you thought this is different? Like this isn't right. Like did you already feel like this was I I don't even know what the well, question asked. Like did you already have a sense of like I'm not safe. This isn't right. This isn't like how it's supposed to be. Or did you, were you just that oblivious six year old who was like, Oh, okay. No, I I will say this. I I think that's a a dual question. And the reason being is now I'm adult and I can look back on that. Right. Right. But at at that time when my sisters were there and it was like us as a full unit, I would say no, you know, yeah, we moved a lot, but you know, I mean, I know really any difference of that. Sometimes I would say, of course, it's uncomfortable living. You, rem- I remember memories of being in a shelter home uh, or, you know, um, a homeless shelter and being like, who are all these people? But my mom was always really great. She's always one of those people who are super pest or optimistic. So everything, you know, she did her best during that time to really make it wherever we felt was home. So during that time period, I would say maybe I sensed that there was something off. There were moments or there were definitely days or, um, you know, I noticed when other kids, like we'd have conversations. I'm like, oh, that's that's not how, you know, that's not what it's like for me. Or, oh, we don't get presents during that time. There were things like that that you noticed that I think any kid would notice, but not to the point where it was like, I feel unsafe. Okay. You know? No, that makes complete sense. Um, and the, were your sisters older or younger or both? Both. I'm I'm the middle child of three girls. Okay. And so your sisters, yeah. wow, like that, that would be really hard to have these people that, you know, you grow up with. And yeah. all of a sudden they're like, okay, they're living somewhere else and you're by yourself, a single child, all of a sudden. Yeah. And, and that that part for sure is when I knew something wasn't right and wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, that being without my sisters, I knew my older sister took, you know, the brunt of taking care of us. I knew that. And I knew without them, life was going to be a lot different. Mm-hmm. And from the day they were gone, it, it was just, I felt like it was my mom. She had checked out, you know, I I don't know what happened. I don't know if she had expected to at this point have her children be somewhere safe because she felt like she couldn't provide. I do remember we were being evicted and I remember it was because of something actually me and my sister had done. Like we'd gone and egged someone's car. We'd done something that was like not good because we were hanging out with kids that weren't great because we lived in a neighborhood that was not great and uh we and I still remember feeling guilty like this is my fault the reason my family like they have to go away is because something I did and so at that point I think I really started to feel it you know I can remember how I felt in those moments or thoughts that I had And, and yeah maybe they're tainted by time or but it's also very like vivid to me also so yeah I that okay yeah okay so then what how old were you when you first went into foster care the first time like was it shortly after losing your sisters or 
I think that, yes, I think it was, it was somewhere near there because I was, yeah, I think I was just turning six. By the time I finally entered into care, I was eight. So there's a two year period here. And I know that it, it wasn't long after that we had gone to Target and my mom just like left me in Target. And then I was, I was there by myself and I went into a foster home that time. And I really think she was seeking for someone else to take care of me. She felt like she just couldn't do it. So you go to Target. Did you have a feeling? Like, did she say goodbye? Did she, or did she just try to lose you in the store and left? Or like, did. And I think, you know, honestly, I think that like I wandered off. And, um, you know, I, I don't remember everything from that day, to be honest, because I was, it was one of the first times I entered into care that I could remember. And so it was, it was a very jarring moment for me. Um, but I, I remember being like kind of wandering off from her after she told me to stay with her a couple of times, but I was famous for this, like always like going and seeing something shiny and, um, you know, and kind of, you know, hiding and under you know, clothes racks and things that kids do. And then I just remember going and just felt like I'm lost. Where is she? What's going on? Um, And she was, she was sort of nowhere to be found. And when I remember going to the front and one of the employees paging her, nobody showed up. And so I, I don't know at that point what had happened. Like if she just decided or if, you know, she went looking for me and I don't remember the exact amount of time that I honestly stayed in care at that point. Right. It was, it was sort of this, I remember kind of bouncing in and out or staying at other people's houses during this time because we were in between locations. So it's that kind of sort of blurs together for me. But I remember that because I remember feeling so lost in that store and so scared. And this became a time where I remember there was lots of times where I went looking for my mom. So with my mom's bipolar, she was sort of, you know, she had a very childlike personality and, and then she was an adult. And so it was weird. So sometimes I felt like I was momming her at a very young age during, mm. you know, these in-between years. And uh, I had gone back to her and I remember we were counseling. And I remember that very distinctly, like all of, all of those things and trying to make things better between us as a family unit. But there, there was still a huge struggle huge struggle there just trying to make ends meet I remember days where there wasn't a ton of food in the house um I do do remember now like I look back at it and I can see like oh my mom was depressed I didn't have a name for it I just knew she stayed in bed all day I just knew you know when she said you know I couldn't find anyone to watch you but I'm gonna go hang out with my friends and then I was by myself for days at a time um, there were a lot of things like that after my sisters had gone that, you know, were happening during those times. So was my it- mom, it was never a physical, she never physically harmed me per se. You know, there wasn't anything where it was an extreme abuse or anything like that. But yeah. yeah. Well, she there was battling other- her own battle. And is she yes. dealing yes. with mental illness? Like, I don't, 
it scares me. I'll be honest. Like it's it's one of those weird things that it's like so not talked about, and it's so not people aren't educated on it, and it's just it's it's a whole other beast to tell you the truth. But yeah, I, I remember have another foster family that I am friends with. Their bio mom um, was also bipolar and schizophrenic. And she would be on and off her meds. And when she was on her meds, it was great. She could be the parent she needed to be to that, you know, that child. But when she was off, there was no controlling. Like, there were moments maybe she could, but there was no way for it to be consistent enough for that child to be safe, you know? And yeah, through conversations sure. of that family, I, I remember the, the, the bio mom saying to the, you know, other foster mom, like, I don't want meds because it's I'm not me on the meds, you know? So it's this weird, like, clash of, like, who they truly are is their brains being bipolar and schizophrenic, but at the same time, that's not safe. But who they are with meds can sometimes not feel like them and how that – that. so was your parent – was your mom someone who took medicine, who didn't take medicine, was on and off because of the income with medicine? You know, I – I honestly, at that young age, I couldn't tell you whether she was on or off medicine. And I feel like I would just be sort of alluding to the fact. That makes um, I mean, you're like, you know, I, like I, I would really like would. to say, you know, I was, I was between the ages of six through eight, where there was, or I mean, six through eight. Oh, wow. Those are great. Um, but six years to eight years old, you know, where it was just me and my mom and there were definitely ups and downs. Mm-hmm and highs and lows and those kind of things that I could say. Now, could I say she was on medication or that she was being treated? I'm not really sure. I remember there was therapy involved. I remember us going to therapy and there being times where we were try we tried and there was a social worker involved. Um, but there, there were just these periods where she would just decide she wanted to take off. And I mean, that's what led to me finally being taken away that final time, you know, um, I got really good at providing for myself. I got really good at finding neighbors or people that I thought would either feed me or take care of me. Um, you know, I, I kind of became my own person during that time. That also included like me not wanting to go to school. Like if it was a choice, like what third, fourth grader wants to go to school? <laughs> um, you know, that was, yeah, that was, so I remember that too. And I remember the struggle of being in school and just being made fun of constantly because either my clothes weren't clean or I just, I didn't know a lot of social norms with how my mom was. So, you know, like other parents showed up for things and my mom was like never there. And to avoid those conversations or, you know, if I knew there were going to be topics that came up, I would just not go to school. That was a thing uh, for like <laughs> two years, to be honest. You know, it was, it was like, and and I think my there were times, you know, where my mom definitely like tried, but I was like a very stubborn child too. I was very strong-willed. I think you you, you kind of have that coming in when you have survival skills. It, it It becomes what you know. You know how to take care of yourself. You become really independent because that's what you need to do. And you have this almost like, you know, your will becomes really strong because if it doesn't, you know, there's going to be something out there that breaks you. You won't survive. And 
yeah, you're not, you're in survival mode and that is that. So I think with, between my mom's depression and all her mental illness going on and being a very strong willed child, um, that was also a huge struggle. So, you know, it came down to my mom had been gone for a couple of weeks. I'm eight years old and by myself. Um, I had, it was raining. I remember this very, very distinctly. I'll never forget this day because I'd locked myself out of the house for who knows what umpteenth time. And um, it was pouring rain outside, pouring rain outside. And I had to go over to the neighbor's house and I frequented their house. They were this older couple. And, you know, I knock on the door and I was left with them. Sometimes they took care of me. They were very kind. I wish I, I could thank them now, you know, um, but they, they lived at the front of our complex and I went and asked on the door and they let me in. And I remember they put the TV on for me and they'd gone in the back and they were arguing and I could hear part of their argument. They're like, we can't keep doing this. We have to say something. We have to tell someone. And they were the final mark of what finally like I'd finally gone in to care and it, it was it was that point where it was like okay they made the call the cop showed up um and I remember having to get in the back of the cop car thinking I'd done something wrong and oh. it have maybe the best impression of cops. I was sort of scared of them for whatever reason. I, I can't even tell you why. Um, and and maybe it stemmed obviously somewhere between these experiences. Uh, you know, I know as yeah. an adult, you know, now that's obviously that's a they're a safe place. Um, but you know, during that time, I didn't go. I couldn't go get any of my stuff and put it into the back of a cop car, and I'm taken to the back of a um, child welfare building. I remember because there's a huge mural out in the back of it um, that's still there. And they dropped me off and another van pulls up at the time. And, you know, I, I got in the car with these other two <laughs> these other two women who had a car a van full of kids and I was like oh my gosh what are they doing to me yeah. <laughs> I'm like does she collect children what is this no one's explained <laughs> but, anything to you like no one's explained anything uh you know they probably could have I remember them saying oh we're gonna go meet someone but I'm in shock I mean yeah. really I'm in shock like I don't know when I'm going to see my mom again. I don't have any of my stuff. I'm in the back of a cop car. I don't know how many of you have been in the back of a cop car, but I'm pretty sure at any moment, that is a freak out moment, no matter how old you are. Once in, <laughs> once in high and, school and it smelled like vomit and I vowed I would never do it again. I didn't get in trouble. Anything, yeah. but I was like, it's not fun. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. I can't exactly. imagine so, a 10-year-old you know, like, being scared like you did something was, that wrong to yeah. do it. Like, well, I was eight. I was eight, okay. actually. Yeah, and so, yeah, it was it was just this really scary moment that like just stuck in my brain forevermore. And oh, yeah. I I went with them, and I remember coming in, and there were a lot of kids in this house. I was like, oh my gosh! And they were like, you know, black, white, Mexican, and I'm like, okay, I'm here. This is happening, and it's just sort of like a barrage of people talking to you all at once. That's what it felt like. Ooh. And I remember there was like loud music and there were like, I mean, everybody was having fun. It wasn't like there was, it was anything 
scary. It was just like overload. It was information overload. Oh yeah. New house, new people, loud music. I'd been living by myself at this point for two weeks. So there's probably some quarantine feelings going on. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, like, oh, now I have to interact with people that I don't know. I'm not even sure I like people. Um, So, and they're totally new people and there's nobody I know here. (laughs) It's like being dropped in a foreign country and be like, not knowing the language, not knowing, you know, where you're going, what you're going to eat who you're going to be with. It was weird. And so, yeah. you know, like that whole, and so that was the home that I stayed in actually for the next 10 years. What? I mean, the, yeah, yeah. So you're, I, wow. I, that was my first night in the home that I stayed in for the next 10 years. Now that's different that's than most, I feel like, than, than lots of foster kids' stories, because you always hear them bouncing around, bouncing around, bouncing. Even my girls, who are nine months, uh, who I got when I was nine, they weren't, I was not nine months old when I got my girls. <laughs> Even my girls, who I got when they were nine months old, are with, uh, we were their second placement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had, I bounced in and out before I was permanently in foster care, you know, you um, until my mom. in the same spot. No, no. So be previous to this time, right, between that age of six and eight, I went in and out of care a couple of times. Got it. So, but is- I always went back to my mom. So I would, I would go back to my mom at that point and, you know, we would work on things and I would stay with mom for X amount of time. And then, and then okay. Yes. Yes. But it was always for very short stays and it was just like a couple of times. So for me, but, but because we were bouncing around so much anyways, because we were homeless, it didn't feel different. If that makes sense. Oh no, it makes, it there, makes it, sense. You never knew where your, your home was, your body was going to yeah. lie. So then it was like, Oh, mom's just leaving us with these friends that we don't know. Like that's how yeah. I would interpret it. If you, yeah, it was, it was, it was different. It was different. And I don't know if now I was eight years old and I was a little more aware and this time really stuck out to me because obviously moving forward, she gave up her rights on me and it like, it like took like, Oh, I'm staying here. You, you mean I'm not going back to her? Wait, well, before I used to go back, like, yeah. I don't understand. Like it was very confusing for me because, you know, previous to that, they were short stays. You know, you stay with somebody that I, you know, somewhat normal in my life for eight years. Um, so having to stay in one place was abnormal. Interesting. You know, that sounds weird, but I mean, it's true. We were sort of a transient family and, you know, these foster homes came and they went. So this concept of like, she's not coming back for me took a really long time to sink in. And by like, I mean, I would and, imagine it yeah. was, what, what was your uh, court process like? Do you remember any of that? I mean, eight, you kind of had. Oh, yeah. Not... Yes, I do remember that. Did, actually, your mom quite a bit, quote unquote, fight for you? Did she just kind of do the proud route of like, not the proud route, but like the humble route of like, this is better for Mike, for her. I let me give it my rights, like willingly. Like, what was that story? Um, that was, and and it actually happened fairly quickly for me, or it felt like it did. I was there. 
I remember my foster mom prepping me to go to court. She didn't, she didn't go with me at the time. I don't remember why. Um, and I went, so I went with a social worker and we waited. You had to, back then you had to get there like at eight o'clock because they could call your case whenever. Yep. And so we had to show up super early and this was before the courtrooms were like kid friendly. Mm-hmm. So it was just like a waiting room. Yeah. And this very small waiting room and you had nothing to do. And so there's this thing all this time to be super anxious and confused and scared. And seeing and, lots of um, things happen around you. Like it's, it's it, very, I always re, uh, refer to the waiting room of the courtroom, like the dementors going around. Like there's just all the happiness is sucked out and it's just people like talking about, yeah, it's, it's not a fun place. It's not Disneyland. Yeah, no. And, and the thing is, you don't, I didn't even necessarily, I wasn't like looking at what was going on with other people. It was just more, I knew I was there to see my mom and we, I'd never done this part before. This was new for me. The court was new for me. This was all new. And, um, you know, apparently it stayed out of court up until this point. Um, and I think it's because my mom was charged. And so I remember when she was coming in, she was actually in an orange jumpsuit and she was cuffed and she had her hands behind her back and she was sobbing. And I was sort of like, whoa, what's, what's going on? I was, you know, kind of explained, you know, I knew that she had gotten in trouble. I didn't really understand what that meant. I don't know, you know, didn't understand what it's somebody in trouble at this point really means. So we, we, we got to there and she's in her cuffs and she's crying and Jocelyn, I'm so sorry. Cause that's my given name is, is Jocelyn. And she is just wailing in this courtroom and I'm in the back off like to the side and the judge is up there and everybody is just really so like sad. Mm-hmm. And I sense that and I'm, I'm looking for one person to be like I I'm like oh my gosh what is going on what did they do to her what have I done can I say anything that's going to change this and I just remember her saying you know I I want to give up my rights this isn't fair to her there I guess you know she had said as long as she's adopted out I didn't know what that meant so I was just afraid I was afraid of all of this and um I remember the the judge you know, banging something and saying something to me. And I'm kind of like, I don't know, you know, the lady I came with said something and I knew that there, that was it, you know, and she's bawling. I get to hug her and she's taken away. Oh my goodness. And I am just in shock again. I'm like, what just happened? I'm pretty sure this means I don't get to go home. And it's like on the drive home, I am literally panicking at this point. I'm in the car. I remember she's trying to talk to me. I don't even remember if I really answered back. I don't remember what that woman's face even looks like, to be honest with you. And I get home to, you know, what would be my home. And I walk through the door and I'm just bawling. And I remember it was one of my foster moms that just grabbed me because there were two moms in this home and she just grabbed me and there's a baby gate between us and I am bawling. 
because I didn't understand every word in that courtroom, but I interpreted it as nobody wanted me. Oh, man. And I understood that. I knew what that felt like. That's just. And oh, yeah, that's not a moment you forget. You know, no, I'm crying not. over here just to let you know. My listeners are like, I'm of course sorry. you are. No, 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 I'm sorry. I'm a baller. I'm a crier. It's okay. Um, it's, not, it's not a real podcast unless I cry, so it all works out. <laughs> no, but I just can't imagine, like, my daughters are nine, you know, and, like, they fill in the stories of things they don't hear, and, like, I can see, like, the trauma this created for you, you know, like, this idea of, like, not knowing the sense of not, like, I don't feel like you should have been in that courtroom. You know, like, I don't feel like that it was appropriate for you to be there. Like, they should have had another screening, another time where your mom could have properly said goodbye. And then someone could have told you what was going on. You know, like. Yeah, oh. I, I definitely wish they would have brought her in in an orange jumpsuit and cuffs. I wish there could have been, a you know, a process of respect for both the children. And, and I'm sure the court has had many far growing years um i haven't been there when one of these proceedings take have taken place again um but you know i i do know our now local courtrooms they're much more kid friendly i i know they have put a lot of effort into making the waiting rooms uh where there's toys and there's stuff for the kids to do and i think they're oh i mean at least here in this county they're a lot more observant of that um, it's still a mix here in but, LA County. In LA County, it's kind of like they try, but it's still, I feel like they still don't protect the kid as much. And that's mainly because trauma isn't their focus, you know? Like they're not, yeah. they all say they're thinking of the child, but in the end, it's just still a court proceeding that they're trying to figure out a decision on, you know? Yeah. So it's hard. And, to and I think it's, yeah, and I think it's hard because I think there's certain like legal rights to the children that, you know, should they be there? I, you know, I don't know if somebody else's story that wishes they were there and that's the last time they got to say goodbye. That makes complete um, sense too. Like, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I look back at it and of course it's a very, very vivid memory for me. And it's something that I've worked through. So it almost feels like I'm telling somebody else's story sometimes when I'm telling it. I get that. That's but how then when I'm, story feels like. yeah. Sometimes when I'm like this deep into it, there are moments where I'm like, oh yeah, that's how that felt. It, there, there's no denying that. There's no, yeah. you know, that, and we know now that trauma lives in the body, right? Yeah. So there's research over the years that have shown that. So of course I can recall that moment and feel that again. Um, Sorry, you know, I, I try to do that. I feel crappy. No, now. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't. This is something I, I choose to do. This is something I go in prepared to do. I prepare before I share my story this way. I have tools and skills in order to, you know, protect my mental health. And, and Good. I know what I'm doing. And I know that I'm doing this in order to build a bridge in order to give people, hopefully maybe inspire somebody to become a foster parent or to be more understanding with a child who's going through this. All of those things are the reasons that I step into this role, knowing what I'm doing. I'm an adult now. And also I share that because sometimes I think people have, people relive trauma and they're not 
fully prepared. So one of the things I would say is, you know, and especially in a story, not like where you were an adult when this happened, when a trauma happened, but when you're a child, when a trauma happens, sometimes I, I, I don't always know, especially for our, our younger, my younger brothers and sisters who are alumni. And I refer to as brother and sisters because I feel like we all grew up in a system together. That makes sense. If they're younger, they haven't had a chance to process their story and we're asking them to share. It's just something to be aware of. Like, you know, I think sometimes people can overshare and they don't mean to, right? Um, but this entire time, you've been super respectful and I've appreciate that from the get-go. It's the reason I chose to do this, you know, podcast with you. So don't feel bad. Okay. Um, you know. Well, I'm I'm doing this with a purpose in mind. So and I appreciate good. you sharing that and doing this for us because I feel like the more that we're open and honest and real, the more that we learn from each other and the more that we can change ourselves and change the world, honestly. Um so that's yeah. great. Yeah. Okay. So so your mom uh one of your foster moms just grabbed you, hugged you. How many, yeah, and how many kids are in this I, house? So there's two foster moms. Oh, gosh. Yeah, there's there's two foster mamas. Uh, they had a daycare back then. And so I remember my first night in care, uh, when waking up to it, there were all these little people surrounding me. And I was like, oh, my gosh. It's like waking up in the Wizard of Oz. There's no chance. <laughs> um, but uh, they, the daycare had kind of gotten into the room I was staying in, so it was kind of funny. But so I remember all those. But of, like, I think she was licensed for six kids. And at the time, um, her girlfriend at the time had her two kids. She biologically had, you know, she has four, but two who lived in home. And she was licensed for, I think, six, between four and six. So and I think there were maybe three. Well, let's see. I, I won't say names, but yeah. I'm kind of counting in my head. I think there were at least four other foster children in the home at the, at the time. I mean, minimum five kids, but up, up to 10 at any given moment. Yes. And I imagine. Yes. This was a rather large house, though. So, yeah. Hey. And it's always cycling in and out, too, as people are being reunified and whatnot and all that jazz. Yes. Oh, for sure. For sure. There there was a lot of that. Were there and, any other um, long-term foster brothers or sisters that you grew up with? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There were different ones over the years. Um, I think I was the one who stayed the longest. I was there for 10 years. And, um, you know, we did an adult adoption when I was 25. So okay. this story ends at a happy, like, coming in. It's really, you know, kind of crazy. And the reason we never did an, an adoption during the time that I was in care, she always gave me choice. Um, I mean, her the daycare was called Kids or People Too. So that would tell you just a lot about how they viewed children. And, um she always, it was, you know, my foster mom was the main foster mom who, you know, had the licensing and was part of it. Of course, they were both yeah. background checked and all that good stuff. But at the time, it was like she was the person whose license all the kids basically were under. Right. And so with that, she, me and her had conversations around it. And I didn't want to be adopted. 
at the time. And I know that may sound like a really weird thing to some of your listeners or maybe even to you being an adoptive mom. But what you have to understand is I came in at eight years old. I had a mom and two sisters. I had a family. And just because I now had a safe place to live, that didn't mean that family went away. And even though I knew my mom had given up on me and didn't, but to me in my mind, in my very eight-year-old mind, I was like, she's going to come back. She always comes back. That's a, this is what we do. This yeah. is how we work out things. I mean, why would she not come back for me? And there was a sense there's, you know, a grieving process. There's a denial. There's denial you, all, all of those things, right? Yeah. yeah, there we go. I'm on the right bus. Um, (laughs) so it it was a process and how I understood adoption back then was that it meant replacing your family you got they said you got a new family well what do you do with the family that I already had what do you mean I got a new family I have a family I know their names I remember what they look like like I don't get it And actually, I had an adoption social worker because I learned that part of the deal was that if she were to give up on rights with me, that they would find me a new family, that that's what she wanted for me, what was one of her requests. And um, social workers, my foster mom, she confirmed it because I, I later came to know my whole story, you know, talked to people and yeah. Um, so I was, I had an adoption social worker. I remember him very well. He was amazing. And I went and I visited with all these families and they were great, but they weren't, they weren't my family. I still had hope that I would someday see my two sisters, um, that my mom would come around, you know, and, and there's a hope that you hold out for. And I would go and I would visit with all these families and they were amazing. There were some that, you know, maybe I didn't want to go with because there was a conflict or you sense something as, as a kid, you're like, eh, I don't know what you're in this for. You yeah. know, like I, I got that feeling to be honest. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I felt like one family to be completely honest, wanted to adopt me for a playmate for their child because it got brought up several times. And I thought for me, that was weird. If I'm completely honest here on yeah. this podcast, like yeah. that's strange. I feel like, you continually tell someone on the visits that like, oh, you guys are going to get to play together and she's always wanted. Uh, and maybe they, the intentions were good, but it definitely started feeling like I was meant to be there to be a, like a sibling for her, not be a part of a family, if that makes sense. Be a playmate for this, that specific yeah, I can see the intentions of the possible adoption family like their wording being yeah like with intentions being right but I can also see as an eight-year-old going so I'm not only going to be yours I'm just this long-term friend for this guy you know like yeah yeah and I definitely yeah and I definitely was looking for reasons for these families not to be what they appeared to be I won't lie to you I mean I remember one of the families even came to me they had taken me out and I think somebody even took me to Disneyland or like a theme park of sorts and it was like this great day and they came back and I had money and you have to understand I didn't know any religion at the time and I just knew the money said in God we trust I was like look they're so religious they even put it on their money do you really want me to go with these people 
<laughs> and my foster mom got a really great laugh out of that one because I realized that's fun all the money. Oh. <laughs> she did pull me aside one day and said, you know, you don't have to go with any of them. You can stay here with me. And so I did. It was like, I felt comfortable there. I felt like I was part of a family unit. I fit in all these different people. And, you know, I I loved that house. It was full of laughter, loud music, lots of chaos. It was the kind of chaos I, I think of that I sort of needed. I didn't, for me, I was used to constantly being on the go. So it's like mm. always being out to sea or on a roller coaster, right? Yeah. And then you finally get off and you have to get your sea legs or that motion no longer is there. It's like, I don't know what to do. All those homes felt like that. Her home kind of felt like there was still a little bit of chaos. You're I was still sort of on chaos for sure. Yeah, I was still on some roller coaster. It just wasn't right. as bad. I, you know, it I, was more like a, a normal chaos. Yes. I don't know. If that makes I, sense. It totally makes sense, actually. At any point, did a, did you tell the social worker like, "Look, I don't want to be adopted," and they just kept pushing it? Or no, uh, actually, I told him. I actually remember his name. His name was Sam. He is now since retired um and he was so respectful he went and advocated for me and actually told them look she knows what she's talking about she knows what she wants I don't think we should keep trying to adopt her out she wants to stay here so they did they listened and I was able to stay in that home and that's I mean that's where I wanted to be I now know adoption means extending family it means you know I think even if, you know, kids who've been adopted and they may never see those people again that were their biological parents, that's still a piece of who they are. That doesn't change that. And someday they may want to go and learn or know more about those people, but it it has nothing to do with the people who raised you and that are your parents and that love you. You know that. But there's, there's always a need to know, well, do I really look like them? Yeah. When I look in the mirror and I don't look like anyone else, I wonder if my dad really has dark skin like I do. I wonder if, you know, if when I make that face, is that somebody else's face? And then there's the other parts as I got older and even as an adult, I went, oh my God, could I be dating my family? Ew. Mm-hmm. So there are parts of it that different stages of it, I think that you go through, and I know yeah. that sort of maybe sounds ridiculous, but I'm Flipsican, Filipino, and Mexican, right? So <laughs> I, I just my and my my husband that I'm now married to is, is white. For I think it, there's some comfort there for me. <laughs> like, nope, there's no way. <laughs> you know, yeah, for sure so not that right. sounds <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds silly, but there there's some fear I think for anybody. I know, like, <laughs> something that maybe that, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, people who are raised with their biological parents wouldn't think of like what? Like you know your siblings? Well, no, yeah. you don't necessarily yeah. know your blood siblings at all. And then you have a whole other you know. layer of like, were were you were you one of my foster siblings? Is that kind of is gross too? Even though it's totally legal and okay, that's still weird. Yeah, family, but not family, but family, but not family. yeah, like, can... yeah. And and it's strange because there's like like kids who came in for a week, so they lived in my house, but they weren't like. You know, where they, I don't know, but, but there's always that weird in-between space for me. Like, as I was growing up, 
growing up. You know, it's interesting to see foster care through like I stayed the whole 10 years and I I used to love to get up with my foster mom in the middle of the night when we got kids because she was also a shelter like um, a shelter home placement so mm-hmm. some of her beds were shelter home and I would get up and like greet the kids and try to make them feel more comfortable oh, um wow. it was just a, it was just a thing for me and she let me it was never you know maybe not every time but when it was appropriate I was able to sometimes do that and it was interesting kind of seeing she was really um for reunification she mainly did older foster youth because she felt like there wasn't a place for you know teenagers so she mainly did teenagers she did almost all teenagers I think I was probably the younger foster care that was in a permanent placement she did younger kids for her shelter home that's something in itself. We need to interview your your, your mom because that that's another yeah. whole thing. Yeah, that's a whole, whole other thing. And that was something that I knew. We even had discussions about that. I was always the youngest of like the permanent spots until I was older, obviously, yeah. until you know I was getting ready to leave. But um, yeah, it, it was. I feel like growing up in care made me who I am today. Like I'm amazing with people. You could throw me in the room with all total strangers and I feel like I'm home. Mm -hmm. I could go anywhere in the world. I feel like, and, and find a place to call people, my family. Like, that's the thing. Like I get to choose my family. That's something that I learned growing up. And this is like family for me is not always blood it is who I see that's still standing there after all the dust has cleared, you know, yeah. family for me is totally redefined. It's a place where I get to make my new memories and new traditions. Family for me means, you know, when you're still there after I've put a cuss word on your fence, um, you're still there after I snuck out three times. Or I hoarded food in my bedroom. Or I did umpteen amount of things that you shouldn't love me and you're still there. That's family for me. So one thing I can say is is I love well and I love big and deep. Mm. That's something that I got from foster care. I mean, it came with a lot of wounds and a lot of hurts. And I I had to really work through my trauma and the things that I've been through but I was hungry for my healing if you know what I mean that sounds like a really weird way to put it but I really was I I wanted that experience not to be something that said this is who you are but this is what made me who I am becoming that's a big difference you know yeah those are from powerful so, words. That's how I yeah. there with that. Yeah. Um, okay, I have a question. It's not going backward, but it's okay. Well, let's finish this line of thought first. So at 25, so you've stayed there till you're 18 with your yeah. foster mom. Um, mm-hmm. And then at 25, like, explain this process, that 25 being... <laughs> like, 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 what happened between those ten years and then those extra seven years between? Sure, <laughs> uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, you don't have to go day by yeah, day, but just, just 
Yeah. Well, um, just to back up a little bit to being in care, one of the things that you should know, I said she was really for reunification. I really meant that. Um, Because in the process of that, I reunified with both my sisters, even my bio mom. I didn't live with her, but I was taught how to have healthy boundaries with her and how to have her in my life without her influencing all my choices or saying that that is who you are, but no, that's a person you want to have in your life because you love them because she birthed you and because she plays a part in your story. Sure. I will respect that. So she really loved me through the process of all this. And this all leads up to where I'm going at 25. But so by the time I'm done aging out of foster care, I have met, I've reunified with both my sisters. I've gotten visits with both of them. Is this something that your have, foster mom did? Is this something that you asked your social worker? Like, how did that come about? I, it, was, it was a combination of those things. It was my foster mom really respecting the fact that I really had a desire for that. It was a social worker stopping to ask me the right questions because I was a good kid. I never made any waves. I didn't want to be moved. I had a fear of that in foster care. Like they're going to come and they're going to take me. I'm happy. I've watched the white car roll up with the numbers on the plate and the person in the suit come and take kids away over and over again. (laughs) Like, no, I don't want to be that. Uh, Like it, it was a sincere, deep seated fear. And so like I, we even had names for them. We called them the suits. You know, I'm like, ah, oh, it's a suit. Run, hide. So wait, it was wait, a thing. explain this. Um, I, this is new to me. So it's someone who comes up to take a foster kid to a new placement, to jail, to you don't know where. It, it could have been for a number of reasons. Sometimes they were happy to go. Other times they were crying. And in my young age and all that was going up, because you have to understand, it was eight to eighteen. I mean, as I got older, I understood more of it. And it became more normalized. But I had a sincere fear when I saw a white car pull up with numbers on it because I realized that was a state car. That car came and took kids. Wow. Like that was all I needed to know. It was like a trigger for me. I was like, nope, I'm out. Like I need to go be in my room. I need to go help me. I'm leaving. Kind of like I would, I would disappear. Now, were those social workers that? No, when I knew it was my social worker, I was actually always excited to see them. But it was like, I didn't, nobody told me a social worker was showing up and it was just a white car. There was a little bit of fear there. I don't know why. Again, that could just be the the trauma that was there. And I mean, they were all really nice. I don't want to like, you know, there's some amazing social workers. But in that is how I felt in that moment, in that time. So with all that understanding and just this idea, right? So I had a social worker who finally stopped and said like, hey, because I was like, yeah, I'm a good kid. You know, it's going to be like five minutes and then you can get going. I was used to sort of like, oh, here's the rundown. I'm doing great. Like I didn't want to spend a lot of time with a social worker because to me it led to being taken away until I found one that stopped with me and said, hey, like you're worth my time. I'm not just here to like, take you away or just see how you're doing like what do you need and that's when I was like I need to see my sisters I know they're out there where did they go how come you know and I started asking questions and I was encouraged to ask questions and I was never shamed for it or made to feel guilty or made to feel like Mm. I'm somehow hurting someone by having my own emotions because I think sometimes 
we you forget like adults forget like kids can read our faces and kids can read you know what's behind the words we're saying they're not always just listening for the words they're listening for body language they're listening for tone and I never ever felt like it was shame oriented or like I had to choose her or my family it was always like if that's what you want to do I'm here I'm not going anywhere that's awesome I you know, I love you. I care about you. I want to support you. If you love them, I'm sure I'm going to love them. Those were things that were said to me on a constant basis. Awesome. Yeah, of course. That's your mom. She loves you. I know things didn't work out, but I'm sure you can learn how to have a different relationship with her. And so as that message was always there, when I turned 18 and I built a really great relationship with my older sister, she came looking for me. Awesome. And I went on visitations with her. Like I went for summers with her, holidays. I knew her side of her dad's side of the family. I got to she I mean, she really raised me when I was younger too. Um, when my mom would, you know, have her moments as I like to refer to them. And um and when she was sort of checked out, my older sister was always checked in. And she came looking for me when she was old enough to do that. She joined the military, had a stable life. And the truth was, but by the time I would have been ready and she was ready to take me, I already had a life there, if that makes sense. It's not that I didn't want to be with my sister. It's like I had siblings. I had a way of life. I had a school. I hadn't moved in how many years. And I got used to. Yeah like being off the roller coaster, like the big roller coaster. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, didn't want to move again, not because I didn't want to be with my sister, but because I'd fallen in love with this other family and they were now part of my family too. So I turned 18, I'm aging out. I've done IOP. I'm graduating. And at my graduation, I have my biological family from my mom's side because I ended up getting to meet them from a funeral that I had to go to. And they were phenomenal. Wow. Um, I had my biological sisters, both of them. I had my foster parents. And I got to have a huge party at graduation with my friends and my family and my family that I called, you know, that I identified as family and blood yeah. family and all of these different people surrounding me. When I was 18, leaving care. It was like an answer to all of my prayers. And then we all went because my bio mom couldn't go. We all traveled to go see her. And we sat with her where she was at. Wow. And all her brokenness and hurt. And told her it was okay. And that we were just happy to be with her on that day. So it was a beautiful day for me. And I went and lived with my sister in Hawaii. Because she had wanted me to come live with her for some years. She was stationed in Hawaii. And it was the first time me and my older sister and my little sister had lived together mm -hmm. since I was six. Yeah. So here we are, 12 years later, living together in Hawaii. It was a fun adventure, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> and we made up for all the lost years, let me tell you. We fought, we loved, we laughed, mainly laughed. Um, <laughs> we parented my little sister together somehow. <laughs> she was fun. Um, <laughs> and I, 
at some point I decided I wanted to move back to California though, because I wanted to go to school and my, I chose a non-accredited college. I don't know why Mm. it was crazy. It was a Christian college. I thought it was a great idea. That idea always accredited. The college was great. It just wasn't accredited. So I went back to California, um, stayed with my foster mom in an open room or somewhere for a little bit and then found a place on my own was going to community college, was figuring it out. I ended up taking an internship some years later. Maybe I was like 20, 22, 23, I think, when I took the internship. I was younger. It was before 25. And it was with Foster Club. Foster Club is a nonprofit um, agency that works and helps give voice to foster youth, younger foster people former so they work on bills they do teen conferences for foster kids they're phenomenal uh if you have foster kids and they're not involved in foster club you should check them out they are amazing i feel like they changed and in a lot of ways saved my life so i was there i was um actually at community college i was going to community college i had no idea where i was going i was sort of floundering at this point i'm in my 20s i don't have much figured out i have a room but, oh, no, I had to move out of my room. I was actually homeless, living in my car, going to school, and I was ashamed. I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want anyone to know that I'd become a foster statistic. Oh, I was terrified. I so I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone. I just went to school. I found places to park my car or crashed at friends' houses, and they didn't even know that I was homeless. I was just kind of, you know, and I bounced around for a few years. I went and lived with my sister. I kept coming back to Santa Maria because that was the home that I knew and where I grew up. Um, And my foster mom did not know either. So everybody knows. Matter of fact, when she found out, she was like, like she found out in one of the speeches I was giving some years later. And she's like, you never told me. And like, she cried and we cried together and she hugged me and you know, you could have come home. I was like, I know. I was ashamed. It was a whole thing. So anyways. Yeah, exactly. So I'm homeless, have nowhere to go. Foster club is, uh, comes up as an opportunity. I remember um, the per, the executive director, Celeste, had said, hey, when you're ready to come and speak with us, or you're ready to come, come apply. So I applied, and I called every single day. And the person looking over the, the, the things will tell you, I called every single day to check up on my application. Okay. Uh, I was a bit, it was a bit stalkerish, but I was desperate. It, but it worked. Yeah. And it worked. And I became the foster club all-star for California. And so I didn't even know what I had signed up for. I just knew it meant that I had housing for the summer, that they were going to give me money at the end of the summer. And I got to make a change. Boom. I'm there. So they flew me out to Oregon. I did this whole thing during the process of with them. I learned about permanency and we were doing this whole training and we were going to be doing these trainings for other foster kids, but we needed to learn them. And um, I was like, permanency, what, what do you mean? And they began to explain this concept that um, permanency was this idea of having a forever home. And I'm like, well, I mean, I had a forever home. I was there for 10 years. It meant like identifying people as your like your family forever and like actually making it like a permanent thing. They started asking me questions like, you know, it started off really easy. Like, who do you call on your birthday? Where do you go for the holidays? Who if you, when you're off at college, where do you go home to like wash your clothes? 
and go through somebody's fridge. I'm like, people do that? What are you talking about, right? And the more they asked me these questions, the more irritated I was getting because I couldn't check off these questions. And I was frustrated during this training. And they said, but I knew some of them. I was like, well, I call my foster mom. That's who I call on the holidays. That's who I call for my birthdays. And then they asked me a really hard question. They said, who somebody asked it. I don't remember who, if it was in the training or if it was one of the trainers, but they said, who would be at your wedding? Who would walk you down the aisle? Who would be on, you know, who could you imagine sitting on your side? And I didn't know. I wasn't sure. Really? And I, after that training, I called my foster mom and I said, Hey, so I just did this thing and we talked. And I said, Would you be interested in making this official? She said, I would love to. I just never did because I knew how you felt about it. We had a good cry. We decided that we would do it. And a couple of years later, after I was done with my training and um, everything, I found a lawyer who would do it pro bono. And, and we went through with it. It was a whole process, wow. but it was good. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Okay. We're going to stop here. This is a perfect, okay. perfect spot. And for the listeners, just to let you know, the reason why we're going to stop here is because this is only really half of, this is the first act. Like this is the first act of, <laughs> JoJo's life. I have a so long gonna, story. We're going to have a brief intermission and then we're going to get to what she starts doing with Foster Club and what she's doing now and the training and stuff because it's a whole nother day to listen to, really. It's, I, I, I there's just so much, I'm telling you, that first day we could have talked for hours and hours and hours. Instead, we're going to record it and let us talk hours and hours and hours while other people listen to us. It's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate you telling your story, this first act of your story, and I look forward to you telling us the second act. So listeners, stay tuned. Thank you. Thanks for riding on the denial bus. But your stop's coming up. You're going to have to get off. Get back to the real world. Life. Don't worry. You got this.